Welcome to the third of four parts of this roundtable discussion with the faculty of the Educational Initiative, Emerging Treatment Options for the Reversal of Oral Anticoagulant Therapy. These podcasts were produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from CSL Bearing. In part three, Dr. Edith Nutescu explores issues related to balancing bleeding and thrombosis risk with Drs. William Dager and James Kalis. One of the key clinical considerations in attaining appropriate use of these novel agents in a safe manner is to balance the risk of bleeding and risk of thrombosis in selecting a certain agent. And how do we go about assessing both, but in a manner that, again, you know, somebody who really needs one of these therapies, you know, high risk of thrombosis, gets the right drug, but, you know, if the bleeding risk is high, how do we cross that bridge? So what is the best approach? And, you know, maybe I can start, you know, give you my thoughts on how we approach this at my institution and, you know, in our practice, but I would very much be interested to hear your approaches. And so our thinking on this is to really look at net clinical benefit. So assessing the risk of thrombosis and look at how many events you can save with the various therapies. And then you do the same on the bleeding side and look at how many bleeding events it would cost you, you know, to treat with each of these specific agents. And then you you draw the line, you know, and there's your net clinical benefit looking at, again, events saved versus, you know, uh, the additional cost you would have to pay in bleeding complications or perhaps reduction with some of these newer agents in bleeding complications when you look at uh, the safety profile of these various agents. So as far as risk assessment for thrombosis, you know, specifically focusing For stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation, what we use at UIC as recommended by U.S.-based guidelines is the CHATS-2 score. Now, European guidelines tend to favor the CHATS-2 VASC score that adds a few additional factors, such as age 65 to 75, female race, peripheral vascular disease, in addition to the elements that we already incorporate in CHATS-2. On the bleeding side, interestingly, the U.S. guidelines do not endorse a certain bleeding risk assessment scheme or tool in the U.S. But what we tend to use is the HESBLAT score. There are other bleeding scores that have been validated, like the Atria score, the Hemorrhages Bleeding Risk Index. We tend to use the HESBLAT score, and patients that have a HESBLAT score of three or higher, we qualify as higher bleeding risk. Now, is this an absolute contraindication? Let's say a HESBLAT of over three, is it an absolute contraindication to select an anticoagulant or one of the newer agents? And at least in our opinion, the answer is no, not necessarily because, you know, a lot of these risk factors are reversible risk factors, right? So alcohol intake, you know, over a certain number of drinks per week or uncontrolled blood pressure or obesity, for instance, right? So some of these risk factors you could modify. And so the modifiable risk factors, then if you address those, then you could bring your bleeding risk score lower. So rather than say a HESBLED of three or higher or four or higher is an absolute contraindication, we tend to address the reversible risk factors. And of course, if there's a strong indication uh, for an anticoagulant high thrombosis risk, 
that elevated chess to a score that would win out over a high bleeding risk score. But I would be curious to hear your approaches and, you know, is there an absolute where you would draw the line to say, you know, this is a bleeding risk score where I would not risk, you know, one of these newer agents? Well, this is Bill, and I, uh, one thing when you use a CHAD score, in certain em- environments that's, that's really good, and if a CHAD score is two or lower, as long as those two points don't come from a stroke, you look at those as maybe being low risk. So take that in a little bit more detail. Sure. But one of the things I'm sometimes challenged with is a CHAD score zero, but the echo thro- shows a lot of thrombus because mm-hmm. this wasn't part of the, the echo results were not part of the CHADs database. So sometimes stroke risk is also dependent upon a few other things that they may see in the patient. At our institution, both with our inpatient anticoagulation service as well as in our outpatient anticoagulation service, I don't think that uh, we're as objective as you are at UIC um, from the bleeding side of things, actively incorporating the HasBled. But I think that our approach is more focused on some of the post-marketing data that's come out with the new agents mm-hmm. and what types of patients are we seeing run into problems mm-hmm. with these new drugs. And so older individuals, lower body weight, females with renal dysfunction, those, you know, oftentimes those are the types of patients where we're trying to steer the other members of the healthcare team towards warfarin as really a better alternative. And we generally then assume that our stroke benefit should be somewhat similar, whether whether we use the newer agent or warfarin. One of the things we struggle with is the argument over the fact that the, the newer agents have a lower incidence of intracranial hemorrhages. Mm-hmm. And if some of the data says that no matter what we do, if they come with the intracranial hemorrhage, nothing that we do really matters long term, uh, I think it's a struggle that I face and we probably all face is, yeah, and you may not be able to do as much to reverse them, but you have a lower incidence of complications. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the devil's in the detail as far as the patients, as Jamie, I think, clearly pointed out, is that there are patient populations that the intracranial hemorrhage risk is not beneficial with the newer agents and that we should pay attention to that. And he really keenly articulated those factors that maybe warfarin might be preferred approach when we're dealing with these risks. That's an excellent point because when you look at the cases reported to date in whom these bleeding complications have occurred, the most part these are elderly, debilitated, low-weight, impaired renal function, right? So it goes back to appropriate patient selection, patient and agent selection as a matter of fact. And, you know, this brings up another interesting question. We're seeing differences in renal profiles of these agents and also, you know, some differences in their bleeding profile. So while all three, as Bill, you highlighted, decrease the incidence of intracranial hemorrhage, when you look at major bleeding, when you compare the bigotrin and rivaroxaban with warfarin, there's no difference in major bleeding, yet apixaban results in significantly lower major bleeding complications compared to warfarin. When you look at GI bleeding, the bigotrin rivaroxaban both increase GI bleeding significantly over warfarin versus apixaban shows no difference. So that's issue number one I want us to keep in mind, you know, these differences in bleeding profile. And then two, differences in the renal elimination profile, right? How 
the bigger trend is more dependent on renal elimination, about 80% versus rivaroxabam, about 30% or so, about 20-25% for apixabam. So when it comes to selecting a novel oral anticoagulant or target-specific anticoagulant, in your opinions, would these characteristics make a difference? Like, you know, the differences in bleeding profile and the renal accumulation elimination profile. I definitely think that there's a, an extra layer of complexity with these new agents based on those two characteristics. And also, if you throw in the drug interaction issues that occur with these agents, there may be fewer drug interactions with the newer agents, but they're more complicated and the the general clinician doesn't generally think about um, all the layers of complexity that, from our standpoint, that, that's a, a positive thing, because I think pharmacists have a unique ability to kind of, the differences in these different agents. So I, I definitely think that those are all key points, and that's where I think the focus with the new agents should shift from the day-to-day -day management of anticoagulation to being there on the front end and selecting the right agent for the right patient because we're the ones who are trained the, in the best way to, to really key in on all the patient-specific factors that are going to influence positive results with these drugs. I'm always hesitant when we compare trials and drugs, <laughs> too, because there's, just take one example, time and therapeutic range, and bleeding incidences with those, and the different trials and different profiles. Uh, I think that there's some interesting observations as we get into other agents that um, may shortly become available, but it is how we understand them to use them correctly. And that's a great role for pharmacists. Do you grasp these agents, and are you going to put the right agent with the right patient? And this isn't new for us. I think the low molecular heparins is a great example that when they first came out, no need to monitor. But I can still recall since the prophylactic doses came out first, that we were treating PEs with prophylactic doses because it was misunderstood. The application of the drug, the right drug, the right dose for the given profile of the patient. And if you were to focus on something, I think this is what I would focus on when making those decisions, is matching up the profile of the, pa of the patient to which agent may be the safest benefit because compliance and the adherence may also factor into these decisions. Given that, another driver, I think, is going to be their insurance and what's going to be covered on their insurance or what they can afford to pay for for these therapies. This concludes this part of the roundtable discussion. If you'd like to hear more about the reversal of oral anticoagulant therapy, please listen to the other three parts of this podcast series. In addition, a web-based continuing pharmacy education activity based on the Mid-Year Symposium will be available in mid-February 2013. To access this activity and other educational opportunities on this topic, visit the web portal at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash reversal.